Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. Well, please turn or click in your copy of God's Word to the second chapter of 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use the hardback Bible in the seat in front of you. And uh, if you're using that Bible, I believe it's page 185, 186, towards the back of the book. And you can find your way there. And so uh, grab that. It's always good to have a copy of God's Word to follow along. While you're turning there, let me give you a recap of our series in 1 John. So far, we've made it through 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Looking from a distance and seeing the big picture up until then. But before moving on to 1 John 2, 7, though uh, last week and this week, We've been circling back to look a bit closer at a few things that we've already read, we've already looked at, and we want to look at them a little bit more in depth. Last week, we did that with 1 John 1.9. If you confess with your sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So we did a little bit more in depth of a look on that verse last week. Now today, before we move on to 1 John 2.7... I want to do a close look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Okay, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let me read it, and then we will consider this morning a few implications that it has on our lives. This is what the Word of God says. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the Word of God. Sarah and I have our weekly routine down pat when it comes to watching our son Judah. Not everything else works well throughout the week, but at least we've got this routine down. I watch him in the morning so that she can work a little earlier, and then she watches him later in the afternoon so I can work a little later. It works out pretty well that way. Hanging out with dad in the mornings means making breakfast for mommy every day. Yes, gentlemen, I set a good standard. Three pieces of bacon a buttered bagel, and a watered-down glass of orange juice. Yes, that I did mean to say that. One-third water, two-thirds orange juice. I know, she's a little strange, but (laughs) we love her. When we start cooking the bacon, every morning, I sit Judah on the countertop, and I tell him firmly, stove, hot, ow. And he repeats it. Stove, hot, ow. And it's our routine. We do it every single week, every single day. It's very practical, isn't it? But aside from that one very practical lesson 
an important lesson that I give Judah. There are a lot of times where I'm trying to teach him more conceptual things and less practical. Judah, you can trust Daddy. Right? Daddy wants what's best for you. Or the lesson, some things in life are dangerous. They will hurt you. Daddy wants to protect you from these things. So I'm already trying to instill those in him as well, though the more practical are a little easier, right, to grasp. These lessons are a little less practical than the stove hot owl, and they're harder to directly apply to his immediate life, right? But there's still a lot of value in teaching the conceptual lessons. Daddy loves you. Daddy wants what's best for you. You can trust Daddy, right? There's value in teaching these and not just teaching the practical lessons. Don't touch the stove. In fact, actually, I would say that the conceptual teachings are the foundation upon which we teach the practical lessons, Hear me out. The concepts that we learn are the foundation on which we decide to do what we do and why we do them, right? We do X, Y, and Z practically because we have learned concepts about those things. So I don't say all these things because you need to know what Sarah eats for breakfast every morning, though I'm sure that's very helpful for you to know. I say these things because there are some Scripture passages which are very practical. Scriptures about marriage and how to parent your children, how to go and evangelize, how to have a good work ethic, right? There are Scriptures that are very practical and they're critical. And then there are texts which are less practical and much more conceptual. The divinity of Christ. The process of how, we, how we're saved, what the mechanics are behind that, the trinity, the depth of human sin. These things are less practical and much more conceptual, but these things are no less important. These passages are no less important. If anything, I want us to learn these concepts so that we would trust the practical teachings of Scripture and follow them that much more. This particular passage in 1 John 2, it's one of these more conceptual, or you could say theological passages. Not so immediately applicational. But what we learn here about the person of Jesus is foundationally important for why we should care about what he says why we should live out the commands that He gives us throughout the rest of Scripture. We do what He says in Scripture because we know who He is based on passages like this. We live for Him because we know exactly what He did for us on the cross described in passages like this. And so keep that in mind, though it's not overly applicational, it is extremely important concept to grasp. Keep that in mind as we walk through this passage today. Are you there? 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let's walk through it. First we see, John uses a conditional statement pretty early on. Right in verse 
one. It's an if-then statement. He says, if anyone sins. We just got to do a hard pause there for a second. We're going to be doing a few of those. If, right, if, if we sin, John, John knows that it's not a matter of if, but a when, right? When we sin. John knows the heart of people. He knows his own heart. The phrase, if we sin, it's like saying, if the sun comes up, right? If the government will pay or charge us taxes, right? That's, that's, a, that's what he's saying here, right? If we sin, if I'm going to die one day, if I'm going to drink coffee today, right? It's obvious things that are going to take place, things that will guarantee or, or guarantee But John continues, he says, if or, or when, right, because we all know what's going to happen, when or if we sin, then, John says, we, then we have an advocate with the Father. Can I do another pause and just give you a reality? Not everyone has this provision for when they die. Not everybody can say what John's saying here. If I sin, then I have an advocate. Not everyone can say that. Have you ever known anyone who passed away and had nothing put in order before they died? Nothing was prepared. Nothing was taken care of. Maybe it was an unexpected thing or maybe they just didn't want to think about it. Regardless, they didn't have the provisions in place. Now, hear me before you think I'm drawing a parallel that I'm not trying to draw. Jesus is not our life insurance, right? Jesus is not fire insurance. He isn't our fallback plan. He's not our backup plan. To treat him like any of those things is not to truly love him or know him as Lord, right? My point is this, your sin needs to be dealt with and provisions do need to be made for when you sin and when you face the judge. Some can say, we have this sin problem taken care of. This we, we, is the people of God. It's the church, the, His bride, it's Christ's followers. When the question is asked to you, what do you do about that blot of sin? What do you do about all the sin in your life? Christians are the only ones who can say, we have an advocate. Right? His name is Jesus, the righteous. So I just have to ask you, not knowing everybody in this room, are you a part of this we can you be joined in on this statement? Do you know how your sins are dealt with? If not, it is a legitimate problem. It's not a theoretical problem, and it's not a distant problem to deal with tomorrow. Your sins are the most pressing problem you have, and they have eternal consequences. Please don't leave today. 
without knowing that you are, in fact, a part of the we who has Christ as their provisions for their sin problem. We all have the sin problem. Not all of us have it dealt with. There are two things which we are able to say about our sin problem. Both have to do with what Jesus did for us. There's nothing that you and I can do to make up for and atone for our sins other than pay for it in eternity. Right? There's nothing that we can do to atone for our sins. Only Christ can do that. He is our answer. He is the solution. These are the two things that he does. Clearly in the passage. First, he advocates for us. That's verse 1. He advocates for us. We're going to look at that. And then secondly, he is our propitiation. Verse 2. Let's consider the first one. He is our advocate. This term is originally a, a legal term. It's a courthouse term. Anytime a person is accused of a crime, he or she needs a defense attorney, don't they? Now, thankfully, your pastor can report that he's never stood in a courtroom for something that I've done. Not to say that I haven't done anything, but no. <laughs> I can say, however, that I do remember plenty of times standing before my parents for something that I've done, and it's impossible to argue against their logic, right? I remember one time in the house that I first lived in, we had a balcony, a staircase that went up and a balcony that over saw the living room, and uh, just off of the living room, the downstairs living room was my parents' bedroom, and what I loved to do was climb over the banister railing up on the balcony, right, hands on the back of it, on, standing on the edge, and jump from the balcony onto the couch in the living room. There's enough cushion, and it was a lot of fun for a little boy. My parents, well, they they punished me for that, right? They didn't like whenever I did that, and that's just, you can guess what kind of punishment I would get. And so I, I, I never wanted to get caught doing it, but I never wanted to stop doing it, right? Because that's a lot of fun. Again, I already said that. And so I would often do it, and I would just make sure my parents never saw. Well, I remember one time I was standing there. No one's in sight. Jump midair. My dad walks out of his bedroom. And I'm like, you know, and I just see him. When, he, when I stand in front of him and he says, Isaac, did you jump from the balcony knowing you weren't supposed to? I had no defense. There's no way that I'm getting out of this one. When it comes to our sin, the reality is that God has a lawsuit against you. And it's a rock-solid case. There's no refuting it. The thought of pleading not guilty would be ridiculous. John, in his gospel account, records Jesus' words on this very topic, the guilt of man. John 3.18. Notice, whenever I read this, notice how Jesus speaks with such irrefutable certainty about the verdict of condemnation that is in store for a person who does not believe in him. John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe 
is condemned already. It's not maybe going to be, not about to be. You're already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What's amazing, though, is that Jesus has the only defense that the judge will accept. For those who believe in him and live for him, and those alone, he will stand up before the judge as your defense attorney. And he will say, the defendant's crime has already been made right. The defendant's punishment has already been given. The sentence has already been served. Judge, this debt has already been paid back in its entirety. I did it for him. And you might ask, especially if you didn't grow up in church thinking about these concepts, you may ask, why does God accept Jesus' defense and not the defense from anyone else? It's simple, because no one else gives an acceptable defense but the person of Jesus. There will not be any will huntings who will be able to outsmart the judge and plead his own case by using big words that impress the judge. If you catch the reference, that's good. But Jesus wins the favor of the judge, and he delivers a a convincing defense for two critical reasons found in the text. What makes Jesus different from you and I? Well, there's much to be said on that. Two things in the text. If we go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, our defense attorney, our advocate, is able to give us an acceptable defense because, firstly, his relationship with the Father. He is with the Father. You see, he is the Son, and God the judge is the Father. But the relationship between the defense attorney and the judge runs much deeper than just father and son. They are perfectly united. He is one and the same with the father, the judge. He is of the same being and and contains the same essence of the father. What the father wills, the son wills. They are in unison on everything And they never oppose one another. So that's one reason. That's what makes Jesus different. Is his relationship with the Father. And secondly, it's his righteous character. That allows him to give an acceptable defense before the judge. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus of Nazareth, who was was born of a virgin and found perfect in every way under the law, stands alone as the only one who defies the certainty of sin on humanity. Though he was tempted, he remained firm against the sin. And this allowed him to go to the cross as our perfect sin offering and die as the spotless lamb that the law of God requires as the punishment for sin. So, to follow the the analogy with the courtroom, he alone is able to approach the bench. He has no priors, and he's committed no offenses ever. If we were to approach the holy presence of God on the basis of our own merits, we'd be met with judgment before we took our first step. 
Christ, though, has the merit to be what we could never be. He can advocate for us in a way that we never would be able to do our own. So, how are Christians able to say, we've got this sin issue dealt with for when we sin? Firstly, we can say that Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is with the Father, advocates on our behalf. He advocates for us by getting on the cross and dying for our sins. Which leads to the second thing that Jesus does to deal with this sin problem for us. Not only is he our advocate, but verse 2 says Jesus is also our propitiation. Now, maybe you're like a walking encyclopedia. (laughs) You use this term on a daily basis. I'm going to make the bold assumption, okay? I'm going to step out on a limb and assume that you are like me and assume that it's been a few days since maybe you used this word, okay? Yeah, let's be real. Even if you had all the letters for it in Scrabble, you would still not think to put propitiation down on the board, even if there's a perfect place for it, right? Me neither. And if maybe you don't play Scrabble, if you had the propitiation card in apples to apples, uh, now I get some people, yeah, I know what you're. We would all be reading the definition at the bottom of the card because we don't use that word very much. So since I'm functioning with this bold assumption, that this isn't an everyday term. We need to do some work to figure out what this word means. He is our propitiation. A propitiation is a gift that is given to satisfy another person's anger or dissatisfaction. Particularly, and most commonly, it's to satisfy the, the anger or wrath of a deity. It's a gift given to satisfy their anger. Christ is this propitiation. He is this gift to satisfy the wrath of God. We have Christ who works to satisfy that wrath, which is originally directed towards you and I as sinners. He does this by dying on the cross and taking our place for that punishment. Now, in case you didn't know, these concepts that I just described there are hugely under attack today. Hugely under attack. The thought that God pours out His wrath on sinners and that Christ would be the substitute to take upon Himself that wrath sounds barbaric to many. Some will say, A God who needs to kill His Son to forgive sins? He must either be a cosmic child abuser or a psychotic toddler who just can't control his anger. Right? This is being said today. And then they'll turn to you if you believe in such a concept and they'll say, you're just like primitive cavemen who would worship A God like that. No one in modern times would believe that kind of thing. Okay? And for some Christians, 
they haven't thought too long or hard about how they're saved. What took place for their forgiveness to be awarded to them. Honestly, there are a bunch of Christians who don't know why they believe what they believe. And so for them, what do they do when they hear these kinds of accusations? When someone is aggressive pushing against such a concept as this in their face, there's a good chance they will cave under the pressure of being shamed for their beliefs. It's easy in this this situation that I'm describing that they would just assume they've been taught wrong their whole life. They must have misunderstood. God wouldn't do that. So I, I need to be very clear and unashamed here, not timid, because Scripture is clear and not timid on this issue. Scripture teaches that God does, in fact, deal with sin by pouring out His wrath on sinners. It's not a a barbaric concept. It's an ancient concept because it's biblical. Romans 2, verses 5 and 6 say, But because of your hard and impenitent or unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves. You're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works. There's no gray area on what that day will be made up of. It's a day of wrath. So, what happens? Let me just ask for you to ponder and think on what happens when someone dies and is met with hell for their sins. It's not enough. It's not enough to only say that they get what they chose and what they wanted. That is to be separated from God. You don't want God? Well, you don't have God's presence then. It's not enough to say that's all that's taking place here. That is true. That is what's taking place. But it's not just that. We see in this text that they receive the very wrath of God, their Creator. Scripture also teaches that Jesus takes this punishment that sinners are due upon Himself, and He's a substitute for them. We see this in Scripture all over. Let me read one passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says, He Himself, that's talking about Christ, He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. You see, He takes our place. Our place for what? The wrath of God. Now some might say, well, Isaac, you're just putting a 500-year-old interpretation onto this text that was never intended by the original authors. Just to put your concerns at ease, if that might be you. Let me read a quote from an early church father. His name was Eusebius. He lived in the 300s. This is what he said. Thus, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, he became a curse on our behalf. 
And the Lamb of God not only did this, but was chastised. Gets that from Isaiah 53. On our behalf. And suffered the penalty. He did not owe, but which we owed. Because of the multitude of our sins. And so he became the cause of the forgiveness of our sins. Because he received the death for us. And transferred to himself the scourging. The insults and the dishonor that was due us and drew down upon himself the appointed curse being a curse for us. That's Eusebius of Caesarea. Christ came to satisfy the wrath of God. That is how our sin problem is dealt with. Now, let me ask the question that's addressed in the second half of verse 2. Christ came to satisfy the wrath of God for whose sins? Let me reread 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Praise God. Isn't that amazing? Now, we do have to understand what the word world, the whole world, means here we want to understand who exactly that's talking about. What does he mean by he came to die for the whole world? Let me use an analogy that may be helpful here. If I were to say, I'm going to travel this summer, I'm going to see the world, what would you think I meant? I'm certain that you would not know. I'm sorry, I'm certain that you would know that I didn't mean I was planning to see every single square foot of the globe. You'd know that I'd meant to just communicate that I was going around the world. The whole world. Let me speak on my stance of what John, I think, means here by the world. Who is he a propitiation for? I do not think that John is saying that Jesus appeased God for the sins of literally every person. Instead, I take John to mean that Jesus appeased God's wrath towards both Jews and Gentiles. In other words, all types of people who were scattered all around the world. To use John's language from Revelation, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And since we don't know who those people are on this side of heaven, we must literally go and send people that will go to proclaim the gospel to literally every person everywhere. From Bethany, Missouri, all the way to the tribal people who have not yet heard the name of Jesus. That's why we're so passionate about missions. That's why next week we're starting Lottie Moon Christmas offering giving to give to the international missions because we believe in reaching literally every person with the gospel. But what makes me think that John is talking about every type of person, Jews and Gentiles, when he says the world? Well, my first reason is theological. We know that at the end of time, some people won't be saved. Jesus is very clear that some will approach him at the end of time and he will say, I never knew you. 
And so, if Jesus paid for the sins of those who will never be saved, and if they end up going to hell to pay for their sins, then that means their sins got paid for twice. Once from Jesus, and once from themselves. So that's one reason. It's theological. It's logical. But far more than that, I have scriptural and textual reasons to believe what I believe about what John is saying by the the whole world. I'll be the first one to say that it is dangerous, it's a dangerous thing to interpret a text or a passage in a certain way only because it fits a certain theology. Don't do that. Instead, a good practice for studying the Bible is to read a, a text in its context. Start with the surrounding paragraph and then the chapter, and then the whole book, and then look at everything that that particular author wrote, in this case being John, to make sense of how they used certain words. And we can do exactly that with John. We can ask, how did John specifically say certain things? And when we put this epistle, 1 John, side by side with the gospel of John, it becomes unlikely that when John says the whole world, that he's talking about every literal person. Instead, it becomes very likely that by saying the whole world, John is talking about elect Jews and Gentiles who are scattered around the whole world. Let me read 1 John 2.2 again. It says, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now let me put John, the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 51 and 52 next to it. I think I've gotten that. It's almost as if John had the same thing in mind when he was writing one or the other. Jesus would die for the nations. Die propitiation for our sins. And not for the nations only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus would die for this nation, and he's talking about Jews. But not for this nation only, but for the children of God scattered everywhere. Same sentence structure. You see, John is saying this, that Jesus came and he died for the salvation of his people all around the globe. And if this is what John means by the world here, maybe that's what he means by the world in his most famous verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Regardless, this doesn't impact who we talk to about Jesus, does it? Not at all. We should go and tell everyone. This does teach us, though, about Jesus, about his death, and how it saves us. Please let me tell you, he did not die a random death not knowing who it would be for. He died a very intentional death for his sheep, for those who he calls to himself. Now, walk through the passage again. I know this passage isn't overly practical. I get that. 
It doesn't directly speak to our marriages, our work ethic, our personal finances, what retirement should look like, even though I think it does have implications on all of those. It doesn't directly speak to it. Instead, this passage gives us theological concepts that have infinite value and will impact you for all of eternity. First, it tells us that sin is a guarantee for everyone. It's a universal reality, and it's a universal problem that everyone has to deal with. Please hear that this morning. Secondly, it teaches that some, some can say, we have the answer to this universal problem. But not everyone can say that. Not everyone wants to say that. Thirdly, it teaches that Jesus is the only solution which will be enough for the judge at the end of time. He advocates for those who have faith in Him, and He satisfies the wrath of God for those who have faith in Him. See, these concepts lay the foundation for very practical things that we should all do if you haven't already. You should acknowledge that you, just like everyone else, has a sin problem. I hope you acknowledge that. God tells us to acknowledge it towards Him in prayer and confession. He tells us to acknowledge it before others in a lot of different ways. Active baptism is one good way to acknowledge I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Regardless, we need to acknowledge that we have this sin problem. And along with acknowledging sin, we should all trust in Christ as our solution to this sin He came to be our advocate. And if you have ears to hear this morning, He came to be your advocate. He came to be your propitiation. And in the name of love, He willingly took upon Himself God's punishment designated for you. It's a big God that we serve. If you want to serve God, morning, you haven't ever made that decision before, please don't leave without talking to me or one of the prayer workers up here this morning. There will be some. That's what they're here for. They would love to talk to you about Jesus Christ, your advocate. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com. 